Welcome to Soul Cravings with psychotherapist and writer Karen Seeger. In her show, Karen talks about how to take care, cope, grow, and thrive through difficult times like change, anxiety, loss, death, illness, loneliness, and hopelessness. Karen draws on her knowledge as a therapist, her own life experiences, and offers support locally and globally, and records her shows on her orange houseboat on the River Thames. And now, over to your show host, Karen Seeger. Hello and welcome to this episode of Soul Cravings with me, Karen Seeger. I'm a psychotherapist and writer, and in my podcasts, I share with you down-to-earth talk and support. Today is all about losing a partner. If you're familiar with my work, then you may have seen some of my pieces about how loss and grief affect us and how to cope. Today I'm delighted to share with you an interview I did on today's topic with Marianne Pope, who knows all about it. She was widowed aged 32 after her husband John, a police officer, died at work due to a preventable health and safety accident. Eventually she wrote about her experience in her book A Widow's Awakening. She is the founder and CEO of Pink Gazelle Productions and chair of the John Petropoulos Memorial Fund. Marianne also writes blogs, play scripts and screenplays. She lives on Vancouver Island with her dog Sadie. I will give you Marianne's website and social media details at the end of this interview. This episode is also dedicated to Marianne's dog, Sadie, who you can hear during the recording. Sadly, unknown to us then, Sadie was to die the following day, and I will read out Marianne's dedication at the end of our recording. We start off by Marianne telling us about how her husband died, and we then cover a vast range of topics, such as accepting the unacceptable, when death was preventable, what it is like to be a young widow or young widower, losing the love of your life, your soulmate, what if you parted on an argument, not realising this is the last time you speak with each other, how to honour the memory of a loved one without getting stuck in the past, how pets can save us and become the family we've lost, to fall in love again or to remain single, Caring for our mental health after we have experienced traumatic episodes like death and a lot more besides. Well, I welcome you, Marianne, to today's podcast episode of Soul Cravings. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. And uh, perhaps give us a short introduction. Well, I think um, I'd like to just um, start and give, as you asked, a little bit of an intro about myself. Um, and I think probably the most important thing for listeners to realize is um, how I became a widow. And then we'll get into the grieving and the age at which I was widowed, because I was very young. I was only 32. And what had happened was um, I, I was married to uh, my husband, John, and he was 32 as well when he passed away. And he was a police officer, and we lived in Canada. We're Canadian. 
and he had responded to a break and enter complaint at a warehouse. Uh, it was about five o'clock in the morning and that was in September 2000. And he responded to a break and enter complaint and he went in with the canine officer. And so the canine uh, officer and the dog were searching the main level and John went up um, a ladder to check the mezzanine level. And it was where people did go on occasion um, to store boxes, etc., and things like that. So what had happened was he went up to that um, mezzanine level and he stepped from a safe surface to what looked like another state safe surface. But what it was, unfortunately, was the, the, the top of a false ceiling. So he took that step and he went right through the false ceiling, obviously, uh, fell nine feet into the lunchroom below, hit the back of his head and died of a brain injury that day. And and that in and of itself uh, just speaks to how fast uh, a fatality or serious injury can happen um, at work or anywhere, actually. Um, so um, the canine officer then found him actually in the living room, and, I mean, in the lunchroom, sorry, and secured uh, secured the dog and immediately dropped and performed CPR. And I mention that because that quick action ended up being a huge uh, gift to me and John's family because it meant that I could be with John because he was kept on life support. So even though he was declared brain dead within a couple hours, uh, his body was kept on life support for 17 more hours. So I spent the day with him in the ICU holding his hand and being with him as he passed between life and death. And as excruciatingly painful as that day was, uh, and shock and hurt and all the other things and everything else that comes to the surface, uh, trying to wrap your mind around this horrific new reality. Um, it was also a gift because I had that chance to say goodbye to him versus a corpse, right? Which is what how it could have unfolded. So uh, I'll just quickly go back to um, how he passed away. And the number one reason actually was there was no safety railing in place. And according to Alberta legislation in Canada, there should have been a safety railing in place where John fell. So that was that. Uh, that was a that was a tough thing because uh, it was just basically an oversight. It wasn't you know he wasn't um, shot. He didn't die in a car crash. He wasn't uh, you know stabbed or all the other things that we think a police officer will die in the line of duty. It wasn't that at all. It was the result of a preventable fall of an unsafe workplace. And the reality is is that <laughs> these incidents happened all the time and it's it's injuries on the job like this that, that can kill people um and it, it does it, it happens it's actually quite quite common not that people will die but they can be seriously injured at in a, at a workplace because of course a police officer wouldn't be familiar with the hazards right whereas people who worked at that workplace Absolutely. wouldn't be so what is it like when we know the death was avoidable so that is an emotion and that must be perhaps, you know, an anger at least or an outrage. And then we also have the grief, the loss. So we have these two, at least these two potent emotions. What is that like? I mean, often when, when a loss occurs, there are moments of could this have been avoidable? Is somebody at fault? Is it your fault? Is it my fault? But this is very clear cut. What, mm -hmm. what was that like or what is that still like for you today? Well, um, what it was like uh, right off the bat was, it's, this is unbelievable. Uh, and then the second emotion is, the question is, how am I supposed to accept something that's unacceptable? I was very, very angry because his death was so preventable. So that's a big question. And here, here's the answer is that I didn't have to accept it alone. And by that, I mean, uh, here's a specific example is that John's recruit, poli uh, a police recruit classmates within 
like within two days of his death, they contacted me and said, Marianne, we're starting, we're creating these memorial pins and we're going to start a fund in, in John's memory and we're going to sell these pins. And when you're feeling up to it emotionally, do you want to be involved? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Because they basically said the same thing as me. This is wrong. It should not have happened. By the time of John's funeral, which was, I think, four to five days after his death, they had raised $12,000. And that's exactly what we did. We sat down. Unbelievable. Yeah. And we sat down. And over the coming months, we said, what do we want to do with this money? And, you know, there was talk of it going to um, a scholarship at uh, John's former university. And I'm like, no, no, no. This, this has to go back to the police community in some way. This has to... I think addressed the issue that led to John's death, which was workplace safety. So that's exactly what we did. We, there were three main police officers and for, well, that's been almost 20 years now, if you can believe it, the fund is still going strong. Wow. And what the Memorial Fund does is it creates um, public awareness about why and how people need to make their workplace safe for um, everyone, including emergency responders who may have to go in during an emergency. And we also branched out and educated people about road safety, right? Because those officers and paramedics and firefighters and tow truck drivers at the side of the road, it is so dangerous. So we educate people to slow down and move over. So we, over 20 years, we've created eight public service announcements and a 30-second safety video, a 10-minute safety video. And that's exactly what we do. We raise public awareness and we do lots. Yes. of online safety so that's the answer to your question now that that isn't everybody's path um but I think it was had to be my path it felt so right amidst so much wrong if that makes sense because um John John's dream his lifelong dream was to become a police officer he worked eight years to become a police officer he loved it he lived for it that's that's what he was on this planet to do there was no doubt about it and when he died in the line of duty after only four years on the job, I couldn't just let his dream die. I couldn't have him, but I couldn't let his dream die. So that memorial fund is how his dream lives on. Uh, and those, those police officers stuck with it. And we've got a managing director. And it's just incredible to see the, the work that we have achieved. No, nothing we do will bring John or anyone back. But we can help raise awareness by getting people to think about workplace safety in a different way. And you know what? story is what leads to change because I've done enough presentations about John's death and people look and I can see this light going off yes. in their eyes. They're like, I never thought of workplace safety from that perspective. And I'm like, no, of course not. Neither had I. Yes. <laughs> you know, not, many of us hadn't. These are often risks that police officers um, just have to tolerate. And, and, you know, we as a memorial fund are saying, mm, you know what, you guys, you can as a community help, help make sure your workplaces are that much safer for everyone, including these men and women who have to go in. So this, this life-changing or, or life-ending experience, you have turned it into life-preserving, yes. hopefully. Hopefully. And, and spreading the word. But yeah. I guess it's also done in the way, the way you said this was John's dream, this was his passion. You've acted with that in mind. And yes. I guess we can therefore keep a relationship alive, even though the, the other person is dead, because we continue to behave in yes. that relationship mindset and, 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 and show the care and the respect for the person that is gone and yes. do something that fits in with their aspiration and with the way that they have lived their life and, and not just from our own perspective. Exactly. But, but on that note, I think, I think it doesn't always have to be huge. It doesn't have to be a charity for heaven's sakes. Yes. You know, I, I just think, it, whatever you do, my mother Teresa said, you know, do small things with great love, like whether it's a garden, tending a garden that the person loved, it, it can be anything. And, and I don't mean to say that that's small. It's not. It, the point is, 
I think we have to figure out how to honor our loved ones, even if it's only in our own heart and, and the way we move forward with our lives and our choices and our decisions. That's a personal preference. And, and, and I can only offer that as suggestions to other people because some people, oh, Karen, I've so learned over the years. Some people, some people do reach a point and they just want to put the lid on that and they want to put it in the vault and they want to put it in their heart. And I see the wisdom in that path as well, because here I am almost 20 years later, you know, I don't do as many presentations, but I'm still writing about John's death. There's many big projects on the go. And professionally, I just, I can't stop and nor do I want to, but I really, I've really had to learn to delineate, you know, because I don't want to stay stuck in the past. Yes. And like you, you raised a wonderful point there about keeping the relationship alive. And oh my goodness, I've been working on a play as an example about savior and it's about John falling, hitting the head, hitting his head, and as he dies of a brain brain injury, it's Virginia Woolf who's his spirit guide and takes him to the moment of his brain death. So the past fifteen years, John is alive in my head, and 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 I don't know whether that's healthy or not, but it's the creative process that I need to go through. So it's a little bit of an added bonus that I never would have dreamed of. Yes. Absolutely. And I agree with you. A, we all have to do it in our own way. And the timing may be so different for everybody, you know, wherever we are. And it may change for ourselves as well. It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be even visible to anybody else. What is it like? How do other people perceive you when they realize that you are so connected with John? And that it comes through in the work that you do. And it comes through in so much that you spend your life on at the moment. How do other people regard that? Well, that's a really uh, candid question. I can't ever get into other people's heads. Now, the people that I'm closest with and the people who are involved with me, with the Memorial Fund, including some of the police officers who started the fund, they know me personally so well that they can see... I think I'm safe to say this, that I have made a healthy separation from John, the husband, um, holding on to that versus working proactively to make sure what happened to John doesn't happen to other people. Uh, So I think in that case, and many of my family and friends, I would have to say, well, most of them know I'm extremely happy um, doing what I want to do. My daily life isn't connected to mourning for John. It's more of a proactive for other people now. Now, I can't speak for what strangers must think, um, but I do sometimes wonder when I'm standing up in front of, you know, uh, working at a presentation to, and standing in front, in front of a bunch of people, you know, are people looking at me like, oh my God, that widow, is how, how sad, you know, it's 20 years now and she's still talking about it. But then I think, I think that you know what 99% of the people by the time I get to the end of the of the end of the presentation and I and I make it clear that connection that what we're doing is for others and I'm using John's story as a powerful example for change I think most people are like you know what I get it yes and as I say this isn't this isn't a path for everyone and and believe me it's been a lot of work working through this process to slowly separate that right I don't think this is the path for everyone I'm not sure it would be healthy in fact I think for many years it wasn't healthy for me my mom was a young psychiatric nurse at one point and about year four year five me rewriting my book a widow's awakening she's like Marianne I don't know how healthy this is and I think she was right but on the other side of that all the rewriting forced me 
to heal because I had to go through it again and again and again. So when I came out of that after eight years of rewriting that book and publishing it, self-publishing it after eight years, then I was able to go do those presentations and not be emotionally thrown back to those moments and actually reliving the tragedy, right? I I think you've made a really interesting uh, (laughs) observation there, the difference between um, mourning, grieving, and proactively moving on, but respectfully and and with your full heart, holding on to the memory, the person, the feelings, but but you're not mourning in that way. You are proactively turning it into something else. And again, yes. yes, it's not everybody's cup of tea. But, yes. <laughs> uh, but when we talk about it, people sometimes assume this is part of the mourning or grieving yes. process. Not necessarily so. Right. right. You know, yeah. and people say, oh, well, you know, I've got to give you privacy. I've got to give you time. I've got to move away. You're still in that place. And it's not necessarily so at all. No, no, no. I would say, yeah, that's, that's, you, you raise an excellent point. There was a real delineation now. Um, in the early years, I think there was a lot of concern from family and friends because they're like, oh my gosh, how long is Marianne going to live this, you know, and, and, and be, be there. And then now they see at the other end of this, plus they see all the other things I do with my life and how happy I am in, you know, traveling and spending time with kids and, and my dog and my house and doing yes. this, that, and the other thing, you know, they can see, it's like, okay, you know, work, work is work. And, and right. the rest of my life is the rest of my life. And yes. the two are very connected. Yes. But, but and she- may, may I ask you just on this point, um, yes. because I, I, I read that you have moved recently. Yes. What is it like? I don't know whether this was your first move out of the shared home. And even if it wasn't, but what is it like to move out of the home that we have shared with somebody who has died? Um, Well, okay, so John and I were in Calgary, and we were in our home for four years. Then after he died, I stayed in that home for 10 years. Uh, By that point, I had no problem leaving. I stayed too long. I should have stayed the one year, which is what, you know, for some strange reason, people say you shouldn't make any big life decisions after one year. And fair enough, whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. I, I don't know. But anyways, after one year, I probably should have considered moving because I was excited. I wanted to start, you know, a new life on the island and everything, but I stayed And in hindsight, I should have left sooner, maybe around the seven years or so. I mean, I really look back now and it was like, yeah, I stayed too long because I was just stuck. It wasn't stuck with anything to do with John at the end. It was only 10, it was 10 years later for heaven's sakes. But it was just all the old life, all the people and the friends, everyone I loved dearly, but, but it was very busy. And I knew there were other things I needed to do. There was, there was writing that I needed to do and beaches I needed to walk and things I needed to travel. And I felt very linked to the family and friends support system and to be perfectly candid that's not to do with John it was to do with too much being stuck in the same place and and I felt it was time to move on I think if I'd left that home perhaps maybe after year one or year two yeah it would have been very very difficult but I was so through the grieving process by year 10 I would you know I I, I would say I would say I was about 90% through looking back in hindsight of course you don't know it at the time right you can't assign those kind of statistical numbers but Yeah, looking back, you can sort of map out, okay, so where was I at? Yeah. What was it like at that early age? So early in the relationship, what what advice can you give to others? John and I had actually been together for 12 years. So we met when we were 20 and and he passed away at 32. So that's a good hunk of time at a very, very important age. A lot of fun years, right, in our 20s. We'd only been married for four years. 
uh, but we've been together as a couple for 12. So what was it like to be widowed at 32 was, well, let me be perfectly frank, it was horrific. Um, it was absolutely horrific. It was devastating. It broke my heart. I thought it was going to kill me. I have never, <laughs> nor will I ever, experience that kind of pain. And, and I, I can say that, not that I won't love as much in the, in, in the future. I'm sure I will. But I just know that at that young age, I didn't have the skills to handle that. I, I, whereas now, I'm an old timer. I've lost my mom. I've lost my dad. I've lost pets. I've lost so many people. I've lost jobs. You know what I'm saying? Like grief. Yes, of course, it will still hurt. And it does. But it wasn't the same as when I was 32 and lost the love. Like the, He was absolutely the love of my life at that point. He was my soulmate. Yes. And there was so much wrapped up in that that I don't know whether other people experience or not. Again, it's so personal. But remember at the beginning of this discussion, you said, you know, it really, um, how we move forward depends, uh, or actually might have been in the chat before we, we started recording, but how you said how we move forward depends so much on our circumstances at the time, our relationship at the time. And, and where John and I were at, where we had been married for four years, we were thinking about starting a family. He was definitely on the no fence and I was on that maybe. So I had that to contend with. He died before we started family and I had to figure out is, is motherhood something still I want? Uh, John and I had a big fight right the night before he died, like hours before he went to work. We had a huge fight, right? Because um, I'd said, I'm so scared. I'm going to wake up 20 years from now and still never having, still never have finished writing a book. And he looks at me and he says, you're right about that. As long as you know, that'll have been your choice. And that was the icing on the cake. That was the bookend of our relationship because he'd listened to me for 12 years, talk about writing and not do a heck of a lot towards achieving my dream. So, ouch we ended our relationship really out. I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of words of wisdom from him to contend with. So in a way it was an actual blessing, even though it hurt, <laughs> I knew exactly what I had to do. I knew, I know I, what I had to do with his memorial fund and I knew what I had to do with me personally. And my life has become a writer. So sometimes I think this is important for people, you know, in terms of tips of moving forward. I think sometimes these arguments we have, People often say, oh my God, what a sad way to end. It's like, mm, it's how you perceive it. You know what I mean? If someone was saying something out, if he was being just mean and abusive, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But what he said was said with love and it's exactly what I needed to hear. Yes. And you know, yeah. So so in terms of, of ideas and tips for other people moving on, um, I would say the number one thing is to shut out the riffraff. Um, people are there to love and to help and that's wonderful. And you accept that graciously, of course. But at the end of the day, grief is such a personal path. And the only thing you can do is move forward the best you can do. And, and you know that, right? But it's hard to listen to your soul if you've got everybody chirp, chirp, chirping in your ears, ringing your doorbell, ringing your phone, doing this, doing that, it's telling you, oh, you should go back to work or no, no, don't sell your home or gee, do you think you should go traveling yet? Or, oh, it's too soon to fall in love. And you know what I mean? Like all these things, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to suddenly go from being one type of personality and I am a people pleaser for sure. Uh, and just going, gee, you know, the people around me might know better. And then suddenly going, whoa, 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 this is big. This is grow up time. Like now it's time to do exactly what I need to do. Cause as you know, we're talking about young, young widowhood here and 32s. I thought I was a big, big shot then, but now I look back and it's like, Oh no, that's young. That's really young to deal with something so horrific. Absolutely. And you said there wasn't a lot of support and 
you had to figure it out by yourself and there was informal support perhaps available. But as you said, that pain, that intense pain that we feel, it can also shake our foundation to such an extent that we may start losing, lose confidence, lose our sense of judgment, lose our sense of identity, motivation, hope. I mean, you name it. It's almost like having to regroup Yes. Perhaps not necessarily yeah. start again, but reconnect to, to who you are. I was so cared for, so loved. And yet at the end of the day, um, what we need most um, is to listen to our own selves. And the second thing we need most is to have one person who can listen. And for me, that was my best friend, Kristen. And she, <laughs> she could listen, listen, not advise, and just helped me realize that whatever I was experiencing was part of the process. I wasn't going crazy. It might seem like I'm going crazy and it might be a little weird what I'm going through, but that's okay. It's just part of the process. So that is probably the greatest gift is to, is to be able to find someone and that person can be a paid professional or a friend or a family member. And uh, that's the key, right? Because you have to, you have to have someone to express all that confusion to and trying to make sense of it yes you've got to get it out you've got to say it you've got to articulate it yes hear yourself say it as well if we keep it all in our head oh it's a very different experience it that's when it goes round and round but we need to get it out yes out in the open you know exactly yes i hear somebody in the background i hear is, is that sadie yeah, and I am so sorry. Do you mind if I take just a moment and give her Not her? Two? Okay, yeah. sorry. Okay. That's quite all right. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. That's her third chewy today. She's so um, so used to my constant attention. So what she does is she hides in the bushes and barks and waits for me to come and attend to her. So I hope that didn't disrupt. Not at all. My little dog is... <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Well, that's okay. I'll turn on the fan. <laughs> Hopefully that'll jull the noise a little bit. Oh, she may just want in. Hang on a second. Yes. My goodness. I should have uh, taken my laptop to the beach maybe. <laughs> oh, she's, she's usually pretty good, but oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Oh, no, not, not at all. You know, I've got one myself. <laughs> okay. What kind is your dog? She's a little uh, Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Oh, yes, yes. Really. So, uh, she's sitting behind the screen, so she's very upset that she can't be by my legs, and she's sulking right now. Oh, yes. <laughs> I wish mine would poke quietly. Oh, she can sulk. She will pay me back later on in her own way. She will ignore me. I get the cold shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Did you, you had a dog when John died? You, I did, yeah. Yes. What was that like to have the pet, the pet that has known him as well? To have that, oh. you didn't have the child, but you had the dog. And I don't mean yes. that in a flippant way. There no, no, was no. another living thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, I had Sable. Um, she was a German, long-haired German Shepherd, a Belgian Shepherd. And John and I had her for three years. So that... I think she saved me. <laughs> she saved me big time. Yeah. I totally, totally loved her to bits and she loved me and she became my companion. And then six months after John died, we got um, adopted Soda, who was sort of looked a little bit like Sadie, but 
fatter and fluffier. And she was German Shepherd cross as well. And so the, the three of us basically became a pack for 10 years. And, you know, in hindsight, those dogs were the world to me. Um, and they were like my family, really, you know, so they both passed on now. And then I got Sadie as a bit of an older dog a few years ago. Uh, so yeah, these animals have been extremely helpful. And, uh, you know, just they're my companions and, and they, they suit, they suit my lifestyle, right? As, as a writer and, and I love traveling and, you know, I'm on my own and, and, you know, but that brings me to another question. Did you want to talk about falling in love again? And, or do you want me to talk about that? And, and if you don't mind, I, I yeah. wasn't sure whether, whether you would like to, because I guess that's an important topic. Is yes. it? Is it possible? What is it like for the new person to know? If, right. Do they feel there's a competition? What do those around us think about it? I wish in some ways I could say that I'm an expert on that, but I'm not. Um, I think after John's death, because of the title of your podcast being Soul Cravings, I've really been thinking about what does our soul crave. And I would say probably the top three things that I craved, my soul craved after John's death was um, peace. And to find that piece, I did what I did with the Memorial Fund in my writing. And I and I worked hard to become happy again because that, those were things that were important to my soul. And, you know, to find purpose and creativity through my writing. But what my soul also craved right from the get-go, I would say probably within three months, was to fall in love again. And I tried so hard. Oh, my gosh. I repeatedly fell. Well, I fell very much in love with John Sargent. Um, and we stayed friends for years. We didn't, you know, have a, have a relationship, but I so wanted one. And then I, you know, also fell for some other police officers who knew, um, who knew John and were very close to him. And there was a real psychological connection there. Obviously it was kind of pretty obvious. And yet these men who were so good to me and so kind and who loved John, it's actually makes a lot of sense, right? It's, it's, it's a very powerful connection that's kind of hard to find elsewhere. It's a continuation so, in some ways, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. And I know him, so it's... it's yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, being so close to John, they were and I, I was. And so that, that, in a way, has been a little bit holding me back in terms of falling in love with other people, right? And having, you know, actual real life relationships, not just in my head <laughs> and my craving wanting that. But I also realize that what my soul also craves probably most of all is what I already have. And that is my freedom as an independent woman. And not that it's, you know, <laughs> a chain to be married, but to compromise and to give and to share your life with another human being and possibly a family, that is a huge commitment. And the older I get, the, it's, it's not one that I'm saying I won't do, but I take that really seriously. Love isn't love to me. Romantic love to me. Isn't just like I used to think when I was 20, you just fall in love and whatever. Now it's like, Oh my goodness. No, you have to choose what's best for everybody. Right. You know, the person you love, um, yourself, um, if there's children involved, you know what I mean? And, and it's just, I've be, become in a way a little bit more altruistic. And again, that perhaps hasn't served me personally because what it means is that I'm single because I love my life. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this because of course it's natural when you're, in love with someone as I was with John and you lose that person that is like the Grand Canyon size hole because now you're expected to grieve the death of someone who you normally 
would share that grief with. So suddenly he's gone and I'm going to have to grieve his death, but without him. And it's like the greatest injustice of all. And, and I know that sounds obvious, but it, it really smacks you. So what do you want? You want to replace that. And I, I just, I just say to other widows, because of course I get asked this question all the time. It's like, Oh my gosh, you know, fall in love heavens. Like if that's what you want, if that feels right, do it, go for it. That, that is, that is lovely. I mean, it doesn't bring back what you've lost and it doesn't negate the love that you had. I think there's a lot of guilt that we all experience in those early years. But um, back to my original point though, is now I realize I've become so happy on my own that it is a huge, and I'm going to say it's a huge sacrifice for me to consider, you know, sharing my life with yes. someone. I don't want someone around all the time. Yes. I, I love my solitude. It's, it's, it's how I thrive. So yes. it's interesting at that again, every, every person grieves so differently and I, yes. but I can see, so many widowers in particular find a new mate right off the bat because that makes sense well i guess it it, it 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 is important why we do it because if it's if it's a way of dealing with the grief of of mm. very understandably perhaps trying to shortcut the grief yes yes and have the distraction of a new relationship and obviously we don't think about it consciously in that way right um, I, I guess that might bear a bit of a risk Yes, because because then we might find ourselves in a new relationship and all that grief is coming out and and mm. I, we don't know what the other person will make of that. And then there are additional complications or we just realize nobody will replace the person that has died. But but I hear I hear what you're saying. And, and that's, again, perhaps part of your own journey of finding mm. that peace or finding that purpose and finding your place in the world. And, and I guess many single men and women may agree with you on that. Exactly. And I would have to say that my life now, I, I've worked to get to the point emotionally and psychologically where 99% of my time is great. I, I love it. I, I, don't, I don't pine for that. And yet there's a part of me that knows and this is a funny thing to say, but I also know that being in an intimate relationship is growth, right? It challenges you in other ways. And, and yes. I do feel, I hope that is part of my future. I'm just not in a huge rush because, because I am so happy. And, and um, I know a, a really strong, healthy relationship is going gonna, is gonna to take, not, not hard work, but it's going to take work and it's going to take some give and take. And yes. I'm out of practice. <laughs> it would be life-changing. Yes. You, you, yes. You've got your creative routine. You have your life with your dogs in a new setting. And yes, yes. it's very special. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's really nice to hear, to hear your grief story. Oh, thank as, you. As you said, this, this was the most traumatic, the most, I, I can't even think of appropriate words to summarize how you described that day. Right. But, um, I also just wanted to acknowledge what you said about the CPR, that you had the opportunity to spend a day with John. Right. Even though he was clinically declared brain dead. Yep. Within three, I think it was three, three hours. Yeah. Yes. And mm -hmm. if, if I may, Marianne, just, just briefly go into this, because there might be people who think, well, then he was dead. Why, oh. why did you spend time... You know, why did it matter to you? And I, I guess I can understand why it mattered to you, but it would be nice to hear from you what difference that made for you to be with him those hours. 
Well, um, the palliative care professionals do say that they strongly suspect hearing is the last, last sense to go. And um, so even though a person is no longer functioning with their brain, there's a possibility they can hear. Now, whether that's hearing auditory human-wise or whether that is on a soul level, I don't know. Yes. But there was a few miracles that happened early in that day after John had been legally declared brain dead. Like that's when they get the stamp is his brain is no longer functioning. And after that time, there were moments, they were pretty early in the day, but there were moments when, you know, I would kiss him on the lips and he would spasm and he shouldn't have been able to respond to that. Now, whether that's a physical response or an emotional response, who knows? Things like, you know, early in the day when I was holding his hand, I'm like, I swear to God, I feel a bit of tension. And, you know, when his, his dad uh, would whisper in his ear, my mom and, and things, you know what I mean? There, were, there, was a, there was a physical reaction. And as that day wound down and we got closer to his actual surgery time at midnight, um, that happened less and less. And his forehead got hot and he was getting pneumonia. And you could see he was shutting down. But um, I think that... Uh, it is a tremendous honor to be able to walk someone to their death and to be with them. Um, and it was kind of like the final act for the physical, John. Um, and of course, then all the things that I've done with my life and the Memorial Fund and my writing since have been more of a mm, sort of a um, memory or, or to the person that John was. But to the actual physicality of him, um, to be able to walk him to that moment was incredible, and, and I'd like to share uh, a pretty spectacular thing that happened after I left the hospital. I went home to bed, um, and I woke up at five o'clock in the morning, which of course is 24 hours after his fall, and I looked out the window and there was this huge red and orange light framing my master bedroom window, and I was like, whoa, what is that? And then I fell back asleep again. And then I talked to the organ transplant coordinator from the hospital. The ICU called me, um, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever. And they said, yeah, we, the surgery went well. John was able to donate his pancreatic islets, his kidneys, and his heart to a 53-year-old man. And I said, what time was his heart removed? And it was 5 a.m. Yeah. So there is a possibility that I saw what happens, right, after yes. The heart is released after the the soul is released from the body. Yes. And you, there's there's a million rational things I suppose we could try and explain that away. But I did see that red light again a couple times after yes. his death. So, oh, back to your question in the ICU. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe there is more to us. I, I certainly, I certainly think there is based on my experiences. And uh, that final day with him was was pretty horrible, <laughs> and yet it was also the most beautiful day of my life. Total paradox, right? In it. it you just said soul and then I'm thinking again about the name of our program soul cravings yes and I wonder whether those last hours there there were soul cravings on both both parts of you John and wow. you and yeah. and you could satisfy or, or nourish some of those soul cravings you could give him what he needed yeah. and vice versa Absolutely. And then, of course, that savior play I was telling you about Virginia Woolf, that's totally about that day, right, of him yes. dying. And what were our souls saying to each other? That's yes. what that play is about. And so do I know that? Is that an imagination thing? Or is it taking me 15 years because I'm getting back into, I'm going down layer and layer and layer into the psyche, into the soul level? I, I don't, I don't know. Does it matter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Does it matter? Yeah. If it's good, if it feels good for you, 
if right it, you know if it, if it has purpose and meaning and and yes. it's positive i always think that's that's what matters most yes absolutely now listen do we have one moment to oh, yes i'd like there's one other thing i'd like to address yes. and this is far more pragmatic but i think it's really really important um especially with your background i was uh, mentally fine before John died. Uh, psychologically, I would say I was quite healthy. I certainly didn't have depression or anxiety or anything. But after John's death, I started to um, really grapple, right, with the big, the big questions. And I went off on a bit of a tangent. And I found myself three months after John's death to the point, and this came up so fast, and this is why I like to talk about it, is that it's a bit of a word of warning for people to really watch their mental health when they're grieving a traumatic incident like this. You might think you're okay, but you might not be. So just be wary because three months after John's death, I went to the hospital. Um, John's niece was born and I held the baby in my arms. And all of a sudden, all the fabricated lies, the denial, all the stuff in my head, it just disappeared. And all I was left with is looking at a baby and I realized at the end of the day, I won't get this. I do not get John and I don't get a child with him. And that's, that's funny. It took me three months to truly accept that. And it was a pretty ugly moment, but I didn't have the courage to say I need help because I didn't know I needed help. So I gave the baby back to the mom and I went home and I had a mental breakdown and I seriously considered taking pills and committing suicide. That's the only time in my life that has ever happened. And I didn't because a phone call came in from John Sargent, Rick, uh, just checking on me and I grabbed the phone and in that instant I made a leap from John because he was no longer there. And it was a coping mechanism, yes, but it saved my life, got me through the dark night of the soul. The next morning I woke up and I said, well, whether Rick works or not, I'm gonna make a promise to myself right now and I'm never ever gonna let my thoughts get so out of control again. And I never have because I know now, I know now that's not a game you want to play because it could have ended very, very differently. So I want to end that. I don't mean to end on a somber note, but um, I think it's really, really important because sometimes these, these dark thoughts come up so fast and we shock ourselves. I'm like, I'm not a suicidal person. I don't have depression. Why would I think this? And I'll tell you why you think it because it's so black. All of a sudden you don't want to deal with the pain anymore. It's just, it's too much. It's too much for us to cope with. Yes, I think I think. Uh, uh, thank you so much for I don't know. Dare I say courageous and 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 share this with us. I think I think you're right, and that's why I always advise people when you go through something traumatic as that, and it doesn't have to be grief; it can be other experiences. You know, people are often so fast they just want to carry on with the way things were before. We are okay. I need to distract myself. I need to keep busy. I understand that, but that's very risky. We need to make space oh. for what may come our way. Even if we, and making space doesn't mean we will understand it, but at least we, I think you are more likely to break down if you are over, over busy and have got no mental and no energy, mentally, emotionally, physically, to allow this outburst. And even then you need, I agree, you need the support, you need to have help to work yeah. this through because that's yeah. where the self-medication starts yes that's and that's where the suicidal thoughts come in or this yeah. is where some permanent mental health issues can can start yes 
and yes they can take root you know and we, we, we can't deny difficult feelings we can't avoid them they are unavoidable and they are natural and we need in our world i don't think we spend enough time on learning how to hold and endure type of pain you know it can't be shortcut no no you're absolutely right john himself was the one who said there are no shortcuts mm -hmm. you know he always said that to me and you're you're right but you know what isn't it the human tendency to keep busy to distract ourselves okay like just it's like sort of floating on the surface because the pain is so brutal but you're absolutely right if you don't deal with it it just gets worse no. like like not dealing with something doesn't make it go away no absolutely and you know there's a time for everything yeah. And there is a time for keeping busy and for distraction. But if that is becoming the default, yeah. if, if that is the way of living and dealing, that's not the way of coping at all. Right. I yep. think that is really waiting for a potential disaster to happen. Oh. Well, I'm glad things worked out. <laughs> and it, it, well, and, and, and you have other people like you may, for them, the penny may drop quickly yeah you realized this very quickly even though yes. you felt so deep and it was so raw perhaps there's yeah. something about you where you it was a matter of time and you pulled yourself out of it and you understood yes and it's not yes. like that for everybody and that's oh. okay too it's not because yeah. other people are not good at it it's yeah. just different yeah, you're right. It's, it's, you know, when we hit rock bottom, some of us just say, okay, that is rock bottom, bottom, I declare the rock bottom, and then we start our climb up and other people have to hit rock bottom a few times and it's not rock bottom, they can still go lower. <laughs> well, it is, absolutely. But if it is a mental breakdown, then it's difficult to think straight. Oh, and yes. It's difficult to, to, to rationalize, yes. and to find a purpose and to find to see the light. Yeah. I would say, hold on tight, just just remain still. No drastic actions at all, just remain still and don't yes. think too much. Hey, Marianne, well. thank you so much. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure there is so much more to say, but this is this, this has given a, a really rounded picture. And thank you for sharing. As you said, it's important to understand what happened. Yes. And, and to share that with us. And, yeah. and, and also we talked about what it's like when when uh, a death was avoidable yeah exactly because it's yeah a whole other level isn't it mm -hmm. yes and hopefully whoever listens you know or whoever talks about what they heard here today that may also contribute to raising awareness of work safety or safety anywhere even safety in yeah. our own homes there may be oh, risks yes. in our homes right now that we are familiar with and we we avoid well i wish you well Thank you. I wish you well too. Keep up the amazing work. You're Thank awesome. You so and, oh and, my and, goodness. Well, and you with your writing, and 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 I've seen you. There is some traveling coming your way. Oh, like tomorrow? I'm oh, leaving tomorrow. Ecuador. I didn't. I realized. I saw it on your website. I didn't realize yes. it so soon. Wow! Thank I, you for making the time to talk to us today. Yes. Well, I, I head to like over to the mainland tomorrow to take Sadie, and then my friend and I leave on early Sunday morning flight to Mexico City and on to Quito, Ecuador. Yes, I'm very excited. <laughs> How long are you going away for? Three weeks. Wow. Yes. So we'll see the Galapagos and the Amazon. Mm -hmm. oh, and your dog will be look well looked after. I think she will. She's staying with Lynn's husband. Yeah, Good. she should be okay. Well, listen, have a marvelous time. Okay. Well, thank Good. you so much. Thank and you. you enjoy your summer. 
You too, and have a okay. lovely time. I look forward to seeing some pics on your Twitter feed. I promise I'll post. <laughs> Take care. Take good care. Bye, Marianne. Bye. Bye. No doubt you will join me in thanking Marianne for her time and sharing her very private experiences and feelings in such a frank and kind manner. If you are affected by any of what we have talked about today or you know someone who is, then do take care and do make sure you get the support you may need. As I said at the beginning of today's episode, Marianne's dog Sadie died the next day. I was shocked to receive an email from Marianne telling me about what had happened and I realised that our recording contained Sadie's bark and you could hear her walking through the room, a lot of which I edited out of the recording you have just heard. But Marianne has the full recording. We agreed to dedicate this edition of Soul Cravings to Sadie and here is what Marianne would like me to share with you. As you heard in the podcast, my dog Sadie made herself known with a few barks of hello. Sadly, the next day Sadie had to be put down because of a sudden diagnosis of bone cancer. She was a beautiful 12-year-old golden retriever. I still went on my trip to Ecuador and much to my surprise had a wonderful time in memory of Sadie. Upon my return home, I took the advice shared in this podcast and made the time and space I needed to rest, reflect, grieve and celebrate Sadie and the fun times we share together. Thank you for listening to today's programme. Be sure to check out other episodes of Soul Cravings and Cancer and You, my work and articles on karensieger.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter. You can connect with Marianne via Twitter at Marianne Pope, that's M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E-P-O-P-E at Marianne Pope, on Instagram, Pope.Marianne. Her website is pinkgazelleproductions.com. Her book, A Widow's Awakening, is available on Amazon. Thank you again for listening today and I look forward to welcoming you back soon. Take good care and bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Soul Cravings with your host Karen Seeger. You can follow Karen on Twitter at Karen Seeger. Catch up with her articles, videos and work via her website karenseeger.com That's K-A-R-I-N-S-I-E-G-E-R.